Surprise, surprise, surprise. There's no theme. Well, there is a theme song. It's coming up after this. But, you know, you want to make God laugh, make a plan. I got a cold, and so I came home and uh, laid down on the couch, fell asleep, wake up, and heard a whole bunch of talk about Joe Biden having a senior moment and yelling and screaming at reporters. I wasn't really yelling and screaming at reporters. So I thought, damn it. I can't ignore this. I can absolutely do it in the weekend effing review, but I've got to do something to comment on this. And then I see I got a, a direct message from Shark saying, oh, I got to hear what he says about this. So I'm like, oh, damn it. I got to do it now. Shark wants to hear it. So there you go. Always a pleasure to hear from Shark. So the report is out from the special counsel. Joe Biden gets away with it. He will not be charged because with mishandling classified materials. Why? Because he's old and too sympathetic of a witness. I'm not really sure what kind of prosecutor makes that kind of determination. I guess you have to take into consideration everything. But I'll tell you, I think a lot of the analysis that I've seen, and right now it's 1123, so it's going to be fairly brief here. Uh, it's got to be up by midnight. But a lot of the analysis I've seen they focus on Biden going, the, pro the uh, prosecutor says that Joe Biden is senile. Everybody knows Joe Biden is senile. Okay, there are two groups of people, those who admit it and those who stand to benefit by denying it. And that is it. So that's not really shocking. It is, you know, it finally got a lot of other cable news outlets and broadcast networks to talk about Joe Biden's senility. So there's that. His press conference didn't help. But what it really does, because he said that the jury pool in Washington, D.C., basically said the jury pool in Washington, D.C. is going to find Joe far too sympathetic because politics and because he can't remember anything and he's too damn old. Well, I'll be able to get rid of say a lot more about this on the Weekend F and Review. Patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast, by the way. But... It is perfect ammunition for the Trump team to go against the prosecution of him on the documents case. Not that, you know, hey, he got away with it, that they've asked for a change of venue because Washington, D.C. is totally horribly biased against anybody who isn't a left-wing Democratic douchebag. And they've been denying it. Oh, that's not true. You, you trial of your peers or what? nobody's year of Donald Trump in Washington, D.C. So now you've got a Justice Department official, an employee of the Biden administration, saying flat out, yeah, they, they're biased. They're not going to, you couldn't prosecute, you couldn't convict Joe Biden because the people of Washington, D.C. are biased. That, to me, seems like a pretty damn good line of defense for the Trump lawyers to go out and say, you know what, we want this change of venue in addition to the fact that it's total BS, um, that one is being charged and one isn't being charged because Donald Trump was president and therefore had legal authority to have these documents with him at a minimum while he was president of the United States. Joe Biden was never president for the time that the documents he had, and he just took them anyway. He actually committed theft. He took stuff when he was in the United States senator that was not supposed to leave the skiff, the secure room in the Capitol. He took it. He took it home, and it's sitting in his garage, and they're sitting all over the place, and him and Hunter are making paper airplanes out of it while Hunter's probably rolling some up and make giant fat joints and getting absolutely stoned out of his gourd. 
So that's what struck out to me, stuck out to me is, oh my God, they're admitting the Justice Department, the Biden Justice Department is admitting that you can't get, there's no jury going to convict a Democrat in Washington, D.C. Seems kind of important. Then the president came back out after the report got released. He had to come out. He had to come out. There was no choice. They had to send a boy. They had, what did they fill him full of? What do you think they pumped him up with that they got him to go out in the evening time, long after bedtime, to talk about this report angrily? First off, I want to play you. A, he's insisting that he did not share classified information with his ghostwriter for his god-awful book that nobody bought that he was paid a million dollars for or whatever, half a million dollars. Um, the prosecutor said that he did. not share classified information. I did not. With your ghostwriter? With my ghostwriter. I did not. Guarantee you did not. But the what special the, counsel said well, in the no, report that he did. No, he did not say that. Okay. okay. He did but, not say that. But, Mr. President, well, what let, other, let me okay, answer you. your question. The fact of the matter is, what I didn't want repeated, I didn't want him to know, and I didn't read it to him, was I had written a long memorandum to President Obama why we should not be in, this, in Afghanistan. And I was of this, multiple pages. And so what I was referring to, I said classified, I should have said it was, should be private because it was a contact between the president and the vice president as to what was going on. That's what he's referring to. It was not classified information in that document. It wasn't classified information. It was, well, it's not a, for him to determine, actually. Communications between the president and vice president are at a minimum secret, maybe not top secret, but they should be confidential. You should not, and they are government property. That's the thing. They're government Property. I know that the Presidential Records Act empowers the president to take with him some documents and things that he produced during his administration that were produced during his administration. I am unfamiliar with that power being also vested in the vice president. I could be wrong. Then he goes off about Israel. And this is... Well, no, we'll do Ducey first. Ducey... Shouts out, he gets the first question. The only way you're going to get a question if you're Peter Ducey is if you shout it out first. People are giving Biden a bunch of crap for this one. He does get a little testy. But I honestly, if I'm being honest, I think he's trying to make a joke when he says, I'll let you talk. I think that he's just not funny and he's angry, but I think it's a smart-assy comment that's meant to have some venom with it. But it is meant to be a little bit of a joke. You can decide for yourself. Oh, thank you, and I'll take some questions. President Biden, something the special counsel said in his report is that one of the reasons you were not charged is because, in his description, you are a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. I don't need his recommendation. It's How totally bad out. is your memory, and can you continue as president? My memory is so bad, I let you speak. That's, uh, that's, that's my memory has gotten worse, Mr. So, president? My memory is not good. My memory is fine. My memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. Mr. 
Now he shifts gears there, but it's a totally douchebaggy tone. I let you talk. It's supposed to be a joke. If you just said it with a little bit lighter, less anger, he's, well, I let you talk, didn't I? How much? Maybe my memory isn't great. I let you talk. But then the follow-up question about, you know, has your memory gotten worse? My memory's fine. Take a look at what I've gotten past. Now, if you look at legislative accomplishments from Joseph Rabinette Biden, you have to notice one thing in particular, all of the things he brags about, everything he is proud of, everything he is running to Democrats with and begging Democrats for money off of was passed while Democrats controlled Congress. How difficult is it for a president of the United States to get things done while his party, especially a party with a hive mind, is in control of everything. How does that work? It's not difficult at all. Why is he citing that? That has nothing to do with his memory. And actually, the president has very little to do with much of anything as far as passing legislation. Part of the reason that this so-called border deal died was because Joe Biden didn't involve the House of Representatives. Like, he negotiated with the Senate. Well, the House is where spending bills are supposed to originate. He didn't want to negotiate with the House because he wasn't willing to give up anything. He didn't have to give up really anything in the Senate. So I'm like, oh, okay, we'll agree to all this stuff, but make sure you put a waiver in there where I can just wave it aside and pretend that none of this is really law. And they said, okay, yeah, no, that's fine. And so it was a garbage bill not going anywhere. He didn't want it to go anywhere or his handlers didn't want it to go anywhere. But for him to brag about having gotten things done, Democrats controlled everything. Of course he got stuff done. He passed massive spending bills that <laughs> brought about inflation and are caught making houses unaffordable thanks to interest rates. He got that done. He's literally right there bragging about it. He didn't, you don't have to remember things. To get that done, all you have to do is sign your name to a piece of paper of what Democrats in Congress passed. And then finally, he went on to talk about Israel, and he has another senior moment. Abdel Fattah el-Sisi is the president of Egypt, not the president of Mexico. But for reasons known only to Joe, he decides that Mexico... <laughs> is part of Gaza and uh, Lopez Obrador. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador is the current president of Mexico. And for those of you not particularly well-versed at geography, Mexico is not anywhere near the Gaza Strip. It's kind of on the other side of the planet. But Joe, again, it's not that he screws things up. It's that he doesn't catch it. He doesn't catch it. That's the indication that he slipped people use the wrong name all the time i forget people's name half the time i'm looking at my kids going who the hell are you but when i say their names i'm damn sure of their names i've called people the wrong names a thousand times and then i correct it joe never corrects it he doesn't catch it he's unaware so here he is referring to Mexico as though it were Egypt and opening up a border with Gaza for humanitarian aid. It's 
It's a really bizarre thing that he doesn't catch something like this has to have his staff cringing. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. You talked to the president. The president of Mexico had to be pretty confused. And I bet he says, yeah, you know what? Fine, we'll open the gate. Because why not? What does the president of Mexico have to live? Fine, you can open up the secret wormhole portal that opens up to Gaza from Mexico City or whatever. If we can, as long as we can shove fentanyl through it and make a bunch of money there as well. Not a good look when you're trying to make the case that your brain is fine. Just not. Lastly, though, I got to give Joe a pass. There's a lot being made, and I'm watching Trace Gallagher right now, and they're giving him, and everybody on Fox is giving him hell. He forgot when his son died, and he forgot where he got a, he wears a rosary around his wrist ever since his son died, and he forgot where his son got it, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, um, that's not what I take away from this. Joe does stop. And he does not give the name of the church from which the rosary he wears every day since his son died came. But if you look at the video, just being honest, he puts his hand up like, all right, I'm going to stop talking about this. Why? Because he's talking about his dead son. And that has to be a special type of hell that hopefully nobody listening ever, ever experiences. So He stops himself, not because he can't remember the name of the church, I don't think, but because he's getting emotional. He's getting choked up. And then he talks about the memorial service that they do every year in Bo's honor. They do do that. So I give him a pass on this one. My mother died in 2018. My father passed away last year, as you guys know. I can talk about it for a little bit. But I can't talk about it for very long, either one of them, because there comes a point, and you can laugh, I can talk about them, but I can't talk about that. And you just kind of stop. It's perfectly normal. So I give Joe a pass on this. You can listen to the audio for yourself. I recommend you find the video. You watch him put up his hand, his one hand. He doesn't put it up like in front of his face or anything. He just kind of puts it up in the middle of his chest. It's a little bit behind the microphone, but you can see it. And he kind of just goes, all right, just hold it together. All right, stop move on to something else. That's what I take away. You can decide for yourself. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Let me tell you something. Some of you have commented, I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. You can hear it in his voice. He maybe didn't remember, I don't know, but he was definitely getting emotional there too. And he stopped himself. You'll just watch the video. Look, he's senile as hell. He's corrupt as hell. But on that one, that's just how it was. That's how I see it. 
you pay me nothing for my analysis the truthful analysis that's what it is i'm sure you can find people up and down the radio dial for the rest of today who are going to tell you this guy couldn't remember this he's so senile he can't do that no you maybe never lost anybody you really loved but you talk about it and you don't want to talk about it it's weird you can open up to other people who are going through the same things my friend neil who runs a daily caller he him i can talk to we close the door. We have these conversations every couple of years. And uh, nobody needs to know what is said in there. Nobody needs to know what goes on in there. We compose ourselves and we come back out into the world and we're the same you know, mean douchebags we always are. But that's just how it is. And talk to anybody else. I keep it light. I keep it short. And I move away from the subject as quickly as possible. I don't. I give him a pass on this one. That being said, he's still a senile, corrupt piece of crap. Anyway, that's enough of this preamble. Let's. The show's exceedingly long today. I don't like to make Friday shows exceedingly long, but I recorded a whole show, and now I got to record a whole. What would pass for a whole show for a lot of people? So, double your money's worth today. Check out Patreon.com/slash Derek Hunter Podcast or DerekHunter.Locals.com. The Weekend Effort Review. I'm sure I will have a nastier take on all of this than because it deserves it. But right now, I got to do some editing, blow my nose, and go to bed. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the show. But uh, I want to start off today with a little bit about the border bill because everyone's they just give there's a weird phenomenon going on right now with the left that they have become so insulated and so isolated that they only talk to each other i was looking god awful uh, jamie raskin every other day he's on msnbc or maybe even every other hour he's on msnbc and i think i don't think i've ever seen him on fox I know I haven't seen him on Fox in a long time if he's ever been on Fox, but he just doesn't do it. Not because I don't think Fox asks him, although that's, I suppose, entirely possible, but it's mostly, I suspect, and I've been told by people who would be in sort of a position to know, that they uh, he won't do it. He won't do it. Just like you don't now, I don't know what the the deal is across all of cable news. I suspect that each side has their team and their go to people. But if you look at Fox, at least on Brett Baer's show, and I think it's a worthless kind of segment because of the way it's handled, they have the uh, what do you call it? the the common ground segment where we're like, oh, we all get along. Oh, we're all look, we're bipartisan, working towards. I don't really care, but I I really want everybody grilled. I don't like the uh, kiss-ass interviews of the Republicans, and I don't like the taking an axe to Democrats, unless you take an axe to everybody. Everybody should be, you should have the axe on the table when you interview anybody. You should be willing to go to where they don't want to go, because they work for us, not the other way around. But the media has chosen sides. They have teams. 
and they don't really stray from that. So I don't know when the last time I saw a Republican of note on MSNBC was. Occasionally they do get, you know, Congressman so-and-so, Congressman I never heard of from the 15th district of a state you'll never go to. And you go, oh, they got him on there. And it, you go, why would this guy agree to be on? Because they just get badgered. They just get harassed. They just get uh, somebody jumping down their throat. And you go, why would you agree to that interview? Like, well, I need publicity. There is such a thing as bad publicity. So the media and the political world have become an echo chamber. And the... Uh, See, right up there in Capitol Hill, two blocks away is Fox, CNN, and MSNBC. All these people are readily available. They just choose five of them to be on there. Well, anyway, Chris Murphy was on with uh, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy was on with Chris Hayes. I almost said Rachel Maddow because if you saw the video, you wouldn't know which one it was. And if you listen to the audio, you might not know which one it is either. But Chris Murphy was the Democrat, the lead Democrat negotiating the border bill that's not even the border bill the ukraine bill i don't know why it's called i don't i fall for it too they call it the border bill the border bill the border bill about 85 percent of the money goes to foreign aid very little of it is 118 billion dollars 20 billion has anything to do with the border the rest goes to more than half of it goes to ukraine and then a little bit to israel a little bit to Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. And you go, oh, that's, and this is called the border bill. Very little of it has anything to do with the border. But Chris Murphy was up there, and part of the reason this is dead is because Chris Murphy couldn't contain his glee in explaining what the bill does to his liberal friends, and he did it for all the world to see. And so he's, he's the one who said that the border never shuts down. The president, there's ways around it. Everything can be waived. And like, huh, well, what's the point of the piece of legislation then? But last night with Chris Hayes, Chris Murphy said the quiet part out loud, said what the real ultimate priority is of the Democratic Party. When talking about illegal aliens, he said that Democrats care more about them than anyone else than anyone else. Swear to God, it's a true story. You sit there and, of course, Chris Hayes doesn't really pay attention or agrees or whatever, and you can only say something this stupid and not have it followed up on. Not even to like a point of clarity. Like, wait a second, Congressman, Senator, you just said this. Surely that's not what you mean. And give him a chance to walk it back. But if you are in a safe space where nothing matters, you can just spew something like this and it goes and it's no big deal. So listen, to, he just kind of casually mentions it in this, too. This is what's funny about it. Listen to Chris Murphy just casually dropped in. Well, the people we care most about are the illegal aliens. The negotiation didn't have a path to citizenship. It was entirely on their terms in order to get Ukraine funding, right? 
Well, I mean, Chris, that's been a failed play for 20 years. So right. you are right that that has been the Democratic strategy for 30 years, maybe. Uh, and it has failed to deliver for the people we care about most, the undocumented Americans that are in this country. This is also not 2013 any longer when we ran that play last. Yeah, the people we care about most, the undocumented. There's no such thing as an undocumented American. If you're an American, you by very nature have documents. You're an American, right? Undocumented Americans. It reminds me of what Martin O'Malley, former mayor Tommy Carcetti of Baltimore and former governor of Maryland used to call them. They were new Americans. They're new Americans. They're not new Americans. They might have that new American smell, but they are not new Americans because they're not Americans at all. They're not undocumented Americans at all. They are illegal aliens. But he said it right there, the people we care most about. The people we and Chris Hayes kind of gave it away too at the beginning where he's like, well, the only reason you guys agreed to anything is because you wanted money for Ukraine. Huh. They didn't want money for Israel. They don't want money for Israel. They don't give a damn about Israel. But they wanted money for Ukraine. It's a little bit weird, isn't it? So what you just heard there is two Democrats, two progressive Democrats in good standing, arguing passionately in favor of things that are not related to the United States, that are not beneficial to the United States, that are not anything to the United States. We need money for the Ukraine. It's important. That's more important. So we're doing this, and we want these new Americans, these undocumented Americans. And you think, what do these people think of this country? Well, it turns out not very much. A survey from Pew Research Center found that uh, the partisan differences in U.S. views of Americans, glo- America's global standing. Now, this survey is from uh, July of last year, but the numbers are relevant and telling. Nate Silver was pointing this out this morning on Twitter. That's where I saw it. Said among, you know, the two cho- three choices are U.S. stands above all other countries in the world, meaning USA, number one. Then it's U.S. is one of the greatest countries, along with others. And we're good, but, you know, everybody, other, other countries are good. And then the third option is other countries are better than the U.S., Now, in Republican circles or people who tend to lean Republicans in 2023, 31% of the people who had answered the survey said America stands above. That seems low. Then you got 51% who say U.S. is one of the greatest along with some other countries. Okay, so that's at least a positive view of the United States. And 17% of Republicans are sitting around. They want to take their ball and go home and grousing about the existence of the United States. Over on the Democratic side, though, this is... What's the problem? 2023, again, 9% of Democrats say that the United States stands above all, that the United States is the greatest country in the world. 9% compared to 31%. Now, they do have a big midsection, 54% to compared to 51% of the Republicans. So it's about even there who say, we're as good as other countries, blah, blah, blah. But 36%. 36%, more than a third of Democrats, more than a third of Democrats say that other countries are better than the United States. 
other countries, if actually, if you look back at the data from 2019 and 2021, when the other years that Pew has done these surveys, there is, and I'll tell you, this will tell you how far gone things are for the Democrats. There's no real change in the numbers between when Donald Trump was president and when Joe Biden was president. It used to be liberals hated the country when a Republican was president, and then they'd go, oh, you know what, the country isn't half bad when a Democrat would win the presidency. They no longer do that. In 2019, only 10% thought the United States was the greatest country on the earth, and 31% thought that other countries are better. In 2021, a year into the Biden administration, it did jump to 12% from 10%, but that's still statistically insignificant and within the margin of error of the poll, with 34% saying that other countries are better than the U.S., and then 2023, it went back to nine. It went to nine percent. But what's telling is the only place where there is actual appreciable growth on the left is from 2019. Thirty-one percent said other countries are better than the U.S. To 2023, where 36 percent of Democrats say other countries are better than the U.S. Five percentage points is outside the margin of error. And indicative of what you just heard there between Chris Hayes and Chris Murphy and pretty much what you see from every damn Democrat out there. This is what you get when you have a political party that builds itself on a foundation of hating this country, usually when it's just the other party in charge. But eventually that metastasizes to the country itself and you have an education system to back it up. All righty, hello again, everyone, and welcome to it. It is the 9th of February, 2024. Happy Friday, happy Super Bowl weekend, and happy 60th anniversary of the Beatles' appearance on Ed Sullivan. That's right, that happened 60 years ago today, and most of you may not care, but I think it's pretty damn cool, and I love the Beatles, and I'm re-listening to Tune In right now, which is an epic book that only, like, makes it to 1962 it's amazing how much stuff there is in this book it's over a thousand pages but anyway that's neither here nor there let's get you on to your weekend man don't forget about the weekend the weekend means a lot of things but one of them is the weekend f and review at patreon.com slash derek hunter podcast or derek hunter.locals.com i will be playing injured this weekend you can hear if it sounds like i've got snot in my nose it's only because I've got snot in my nose. It's, I don't know what the hell's going on. So obviously a little bit of a cold thing happening. Hopefully it won't hinder my ability to swear like a drunken sailor. But we shall. I'll, I'll, I'll troop her through because I'm a hero. Patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or Derek Hunter dot locals dot com. All right. Let us get started so we can get to the damn weekend. This negative view of the United States of America is what you'd expect from years of politicians talking about how horrible this country is, educators drilling into kids' heads they don't know how to read or write but or do basic math, but damn, they understand how this country sucks. This country is terrible. This country is racist. It's fundamentally racist. There's uh, some Indian activist I don't know. All his whole Twitter bio is ethnicity, and he's got a picture of himself and a couple of other 
of, uh, I assume, his family members standing at Mount Rushmore, and they're all flipping it off. Okay, there you go. They're all flipping it off. And he tweets it out with, uh, of course, it's a picture from behind. It says, F the, except he doesn't say F, F the USA. It's all stolen land. Like, wow, you really, you really showed that rock who's boss there, pal. Congratulations. Now go back to your horrible, miserable life. And and what lesson do you, you, you got your, uh, I assume it's your young boy sitting next to you, flipping the bird, making daddy proud. And you go, huh, if your life sucks to the point that you're pissed off at a mountain and you think, oh, evil whitey, those because he then goes on to talk about colonizers and everything else, because that's what the left leftists do. If your life sucks because of all these things, what do you think you're doing to your kid? How do you think it's going to work out for your kid? Do you think your kid's going to have a better life? Well, that's the problem. He won't have a better No, he won't have a better life. If you're teaching him that where he lives is terrible, where he lives sucks, and where he lives is created and designed expressly for the purpose of keeping him down, no, he's not going to have a good life. He's not going to try. Maybe he'll try once or twice a little bit, and when it doesn't go his way, he'll suddenly go, Dad was right, and give up. Maybe that is what dad wants. Maybe that isn't what dad wanted. I don't know. I don't care. I can't imagine anybody being dumb enough to not realize that's the end result of what they're doing. So you have to assume that's what daddy-o wants. But when you, uh, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it and those who are lied to about history are doomed to believe it and turn against their own country. The Virginia Senate, with all it's controlled by Democrats, the Virginia legislature, and the help of three Republicans in the Virginia Senate, they passed a measure to strip tax exempt status from, uh, well, originally from Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee's ancestral homes, the foundations that maintain them as historical markers, right? Because they're historical. And uh, they said, oh, well, they're evil. They're bad. We got to get rid of them. They were racist. They were this. They were that. Okay. Well, they were historical. You either can whitewash your history, you can wipe it out, can erase it, or you can teach it honestly and accurately. They're not interested in teaching it honestly and accurately because teaching it honestly and accurately wouldn't help them. It wouldn't help them. So they need to wipe it out. They need to get rid of statues rather than explain who people are and say, well, wait a second, this person didn't actually own slaves. Yes, but they weren't vehemently opposed to slaves. They didn't murder anybody over the slavery. They didn't fight again. They didn't stand up. Nobody did. Nobody thought in 1830, nobody thought anything of it, or very few people did. And by the way, the people who did think anything of it, the people who did do things about it, the people who were calling for laws and trying to pass laws and and f- actively working to free slaves, they were white Christians. I know you're not allowed to. You're not, you're not, there's not a school in this country that'll teach that. But it's true. Get yourselves a copy of some books, history books printed, you know, before Democrats took over education, before they have a chance to burn them all, so you can learn the truth about this country. Now, the Democrats eventually 
took the tax exempt uh, ban or withdrawal back from the Robert E. Lee house. They probably realized that that was a little bit of a bridge too far for now. But again, these are the same people who wanted to remove William Penn from a park celebrating the founding of Pennsylvania that he founded because he held views that the progressive intelligentsia does not find acceptable today. You look at all of these people and all of these things and you go, of course, of course people hate this country. Of course people hate this country. That's what we do. This is when you sit there and you do nothing but relentlessly smear this country. When you engage in absolute hypocrisy, when you sit there and you look at illegal aliens and you go, they're, uh, they're undocumented Americans and they're the people we care about most. Like, you, you weren't elected to care about them at all. You weren't elected to care about anybody. You were elected to represent people. No, I don't really care about it. That's the last thing I want in the world is a politician to care about me. I want them to treat everybody the same way so that if I ever have the need to go to them, they treat me the same way that they treat anybody. They don't go, well, you didn't donate to my campaign or you haven't. I couldn't help but notice that you're a registered this, that, or the other thing. Like, oh, okay, so then I should go to somebody else. You're my representative, but you don't represent me. All of these people are raging, raging hypocrites. They all need to be thrown out. I know. Term limits. Term, we're not going to get term limits. It would take a constitutional amendment to get term limits. And these people aren't about to push for one. We almost got one with the contract with America. But that was it. Ever since then, these people aren't going anywhere. They're unemployable otherwise. They're making a fortune trading stocks. They're not going to give that up. But uh, just north of here, Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey, that he's running for re-election. And uh, it, these people are amazing how they do. I don't know how they live with themselves. I don't know how you can be this hypocritical and live with yourself. I don't care. I get that you're going to be hypocritical. There's certain circumstances where things are going to change. But you can vote a certain way while keeping your mouth shut, right? You don't have to scream from the mountaintops, hey, I'm a raging hypocrite. Everybody look at me. Yet that's what these people do. Bob Casey tweeted out yesterday that his opponent, David McCormick, pretends to care about border security, but he said himself that he would have voted no on the bipartisan border deal, the Ukraine bill. We need to secure our border and stop the flow of fentanyl onto our streets. I supported the bill because we can't put <laughs> we can't put partisanship ahead of America's safety. Can't put partisanship ahead of Americans America's safety. Yes, Bob Casey, American hero. He will stand on that wall and he will stop these illegals from flowing. That's what he cares about so desperately and so deeply. And his opponent is just a, some heartless bastard. Wait a second. What? Oh, if we get in a way back machine back to January 23rd, 2019. Associated Press headline. 
Casey, the very same Casey, to back bill to fund government, not border wall. What? Yeah, no, wait a second. When he had a chance to care about the border, to care deeply about the border, to fight endlessly about the border, fentanyl was a problem back in 2019, too. He voted no, he was against it. Associated Press. Democratic Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania said Wednesday he will vote against a bill reflecting President Trump's demand for border border wall funding as the federal government's nearly five-week-old partisan showdown begins affecting Pennsylvania's state government functions. Casey, uh, speaking at the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank in suburban Harrisburg, yeah, he's right around a bunch of whole poor, poor Pennsylvanians and he goes, yeah, no, what we, what we really need. What you guys need is not jobs, it's not job securities. It's more illegal aliens in this country. He said instead to support a bill already passed to the Democratic-controlled House to reopen the government through February 8th. The bill does not allow money for a border wall. Does not allow money for a border wall. The Trump-backed bill includes $5.7 billion for border wall funding, along with funding to reopen the government on a long-term basis, temporary protections for young immigrants, and new curbs on Central Americans seeking safe haven in the U.S. Huh. Casey said the first priority should be reopening the government before debating border security. Quote, we need to open the government first instead of being caught up in these debates about what one side will give the other. If Trump wants to debate immigration after that for days or weeks or months, we can do that, end quote. Now, this this very same guy who's out there going, we need this. Why, we have to have this. What kind of monsters are you Republicans for not doing My opponent would vote against this bill. It was so important because we have to stop the flow of fentanyl. And, well, more people have been dying of fentanyl overdoses annually or opioid overdoses annually than died in Vietnam for about eight years, if not more. That is That puts it past 2019, puts it way before 2019. Senator Casey didn't give a damn. <laughs> now, Senator Casey didn't care. Oh, well, I'm not going to put up a wall. Now we need to secure the border. You see what I mean when I call these people hypocrites? This is what these people are. This is who they are. This is where they live. Uh, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you change like that. I don't know how you can be unaware of the fact that just four years ago, five years ago, you said what you said. You were vehemently opposed to this. Now, the only way you can do that, the only way you can switch like this on a dime is if you didn't mean any of it. You didn't mean any of it. It doesn't matter. It's not like most principles don't change. You have a principle, you have a core set of beliefs, and that's where you live, that's where you reside. If you're, if you're empty there, if you've got a void there, then you can say anything and do anything, and it's situational. It is one day this, one day that. You can just go about your business and not have to worry about it. You'll sleep like a baby. 
you want to just see how this game works. On February 6th, 2024, just a couple of days ago, head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Premier Jayapal, tweeted out the following with a big picture of her and a group of protesters holding a sign that said, Save Asylum Now. It says the so called border deal would rely on enforcement-only strategies that have failed for decades and open the door to increasing deportations and completely ending asylum. It's cruel, inhumane, and unworkable. Proud to stand with immigrant communities to say, hashtag save asylum now. Now, it sounds like she's not a big fan of that piece of legislation, right? Well, then the word came out from on high, the Democrats, this principled progressive. And Republicans were not going to support this thing because it didn't really do anything that it professed to do. The next day, the very next day, the very same account, let's see, it was uh, on February 6th at 12.52 p.m., so just after lunch, on February 7th at 1.54 p.m., so about an hour later. Premier Jayapal, the very same account, tweets out, Let's be real. Republicans don't actually care about passing an immigration bill or moving our country forward. They'd prefer the politics of a broken immigration system so they could continue spewing their hateful rhetoric and demonizing immigrants. You were just against it 26, 25 hours earlier. 25 hours and two minutes earlier, you were rabid against this. It's unworkable. It's inhumane. It's cruel. And now Republicans go, oh, wait a second. We're not going to vote for it. Oh, so it's not going to pass. Well, now I can stand up and say, well, this is an outrage. These Republicans are blocking this wonderful piece of legislation that would have done nothing but greet illegal immigrants at the border with a hug and maybe a kiss and perhaps a cold beverage. And those Republicans just hate them. 25 hours and two minutes Later, what happened? What changed? Not in the reality, we know what changed, but what ha changed in Premier Jayapal? Nothing. She didn't mean it the first time. She doesn't mean it the second time. She's an opportunist looking for an opportunity. That's what opportunists do. It's right there in their name. She, she, she cares very deeply about asylum seekers. We need it. Oh, no, no, wait, no, this bill is terrible. Oh, now this bill should be passed. Of course Republicans don't want to fix this bill. They don't want to deal with this issue. It can't be both. There is no development that happened in that 25 hours and two minutes that changed any of the text of the legislation. There were no amendments offered. There was nobody saying well, this means this now or this means that now. It was just that Republicans had codified their opposition to it. And once Republicans were against it, it was free and almost required for Jayapal to be for it. They're demonizing immigrants. Well, is it a horrible bill that is cruel, inhumane, and unworkable? Or is it something that uh, would have stopped Republicans' hateful rhetoric and demonizing of immigrants? Which is it? It can't be both. Realistically, it's neither. Realistically, she doesn't give a damn about any of these people other than the fact that she can see them as pawns and use them as pawns.
it's progressive. So I'm looking at all this stuff that's going on on the internet and all this thing, and I, I, you got this perfect example of these hypocritical leftists being ridiculous, being stupid, being just absolute fraud, saying one thing and then the next day saying something else. And what do you find? This is, I promise you over the course of the weekend, this is going to be a big story. You will likely never have heard of Valentina Gomez before, but I guarantee you will hear of Valentina Gomez going forward. Why? Because she's a Republican. And this is how it works in these elections. Democrats come in and they, you know, Joe Biden is senile. He's seeing dead people everywhere. Democrats, hypocrites being exposed as frauds and liars using just their own words. You don't even need to explain it. And then a Republican does something stupid somewhere. Now, she's running for Missouri Attorney General. Right, or I'm sorry, Secretary of State. And it's so, she's 24 years old, so you can't expect a whole hell of a lot from her. Sorry, 24-year-olds out there, but you don't really know squat at 24 years old. Very few people know squat at 24 years old, myself included. When I was 24, I was dumb. New York Post, <clears throat> a GOP candidate in Missouri is literally playing with fire in her quest to rid local libraries of books she claims are nefariously attempting to groom children. Valentina Gomez, a 24-year-old running for Missouri's Secretary of State, shared a video of herself Tuesday on Twitter using a flamethrower to torch a stack of library books about the LGBTQ plus community. Quote, this is what I will do to grooming books when I become Secretary of State, Gomez says in a video. Um, I don't know what the Secretary of State, I mean, each state, I suppose, things are different, but growing up, the Secretary of State that I had to deal with was to get my driver's license, car registration, that kind of stuff, sort of the administrative work of the state. I'm not sure what in the hell... Valentina Gomez thinks the Secretary of State, maybe Missouri's different where the Secretary of State there has a lot broader powers. But that aside, there she is. She's got a, like a makeshift uh, homemade little flamethrower thing. And you just don't... It's just stupid. Okay, the problem is that these books these books like gender queer and whatever that they're in school libraries that's the problem not that these books exist that's an ill of society yes but there's not much you can do about that except for maybe try to address the ills of society you don't get to ban books you can say these books have no place no bearing no need to be in a library they should not be in a library they are Pornographic in the school library, in elementary school libraries, or middle school libraries, or whatever. But public libraries, why not? What's the argument against it? And I know maybe some people will be pissed off at me, but too bad. You sit there and you watch these people run around and you go, oh, the school library, now that's all libraries. Well, there's a difference. 
Your kid goes to school. Your kid has to go to school. So your kid is going to go to the school library at some point. I remember pretty much the only time I was ever in the school library when I was in elementary school was when the class went to the school library for whatever. I don't I don't remember. Maybe we just had to we could sign out books if we wanted to or maybe we had a book report. Doesn't really matter. But I do remember that the only, nobody ever just wandered in there. We were in one class all day in elementary school, one classroom with one teacher. So there was no, like, in between periods, I'm going to duck into the library and take care of some business. There's none of that. It's the whole class marched down the hallway into the library. I thought it was great because that meant that we didn't have to do anything in class for that period of time. So if a kid is in there and they could they could easily come across this sort of inappropriate material. But to go to a public library, the parents have to be aware of this. At least good parents have to be aware. You should be aware of where your kids are roughly all the time. Put a tracker on them if you can't. And then check the tracker. People are like, I got a tracker on my kid. Where is the kid? I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how the thing works. But I got a tracker on them. FBI will figure it out if the kid goes missing. No. Watch what your kids are doing. If your kid's going to the public library in your town, great. Your kids go to the, they're showing an interest in reading. That's wonderful. But if they're signing stuff, you need to be there. You need to be aware of what they're doing. The school can force your kid by putting, you know, can put it in front of your kid. They don't have a choice but to go to the library in courses. They have a choice to go to the public library or not. That's the difference. You don't ban books, and for the love of God, you don't burn books. I don't know. She's all of 24 years old. This seemed like a good idea at the time. She probably raised a bunch of money off of it. But I promise you that soon— Probably well, if she gets the nomination, I don't think she'll get the nomination. There'll be some Republicans asked to answer for this. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? But if she gets the nomination somehow, and I can't imagine a world where a 24-year-old gets the nomination to be Secretary of State. If she gets the nomination, then every Republican will be asked. It will be Todd Aiken all over again. Do you support burning books? Do you support this? Do you support that? Do you support the other thing? Look, there are really gross books out there that I wouldn't let anywhere near my kids, but for the love of God, you don't burn them. You control your kids. There are a lot of books that I would let my kids read that a lot of people wouldn't let their kids read for whatever reason. They're, Quinn is reading this uh, Junie B. Jones books my sister told me about. I don't know anything about it. She loves it. She goes, she can read a couple of books in a day. It's like, Boom, right through them. She's loving these stories. They're about a kid in elementary school. I'm sure that there's something offensive about those, but they're heteronormative or whatever. And uh, some leftists would be very upset. They don't get to ban it. They don't get to prevent me from showing it to my kids. And I don't want to, like, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be around a parent that lets their kid read genderqueer. I wouldn't let my kids around a kid whose parents let them read genderqueer, but if that's what you want, they're your kids, and that's what you can do. You can show them these books. Good luck. You're not... Um, 
I think you're doing damage to your kids, but it's you know you're not butchering their bodies or anything. But you're, I think you're a bad parent, and I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> she says uh, that she posted, she burned up a bunch of books. The post had been viewed eight hundred thousand times. It's now well over that. This story was written yesterday, and garnered thousands of responses, mostly negative. By Wednesday afternoon, quote. I at least enjoy that Valentina Gomez is on record as being an awful candidate human, one user used. I'm not sure if I'm elected I will burn books is really the flex that you think it is, another commenter said. And that's the problem. That's the problem with being a 24-year-old and just going, this seems like a good idea. Did I mention not that long ago that we have a culture that is now almost exclusively just about getting attention, regardless of whether or not it's good attention, bad attention. It is, you know, the line between famous and infamous is long since gone. And so you have this situation where it's just get views, get followers, get likes, get retweets, get uh, whatever the hell they do on Instagram, get this, get that, get the other thing. That's what we need. It's not what we need. It's a problem. It's problematic. There's a big, big difference in dealing with these things. When you deal with these nuts and you... Uh, the video's playing in the background on my laptop and I just can't think of a second. First, and of course, there are some conservatives who... <sighs> just want to get attention. They're like, what's the maximum donation I can get? They're not helping this girl. They're not helping this girl at all. I hope to God there's a whole bunch of other people running for Secretary of State of Missouri because otherwise we're screwed. We're screwed. But you've got to watch this thing. This is how the left works. This is how the right works. This is the way the culture works. I'm all for engaging in the culture. I'm all for making a point about these books and the grooming and I'm against them and there are a few people who've written more have been more vocal about it but I will never advocate for burning them I will never advocate for burning of them it'll be interesting to see how this plays out I suspect by the end of the weekend you will have seen this woman several times if you watch any of the morning shows although maybe the Super Bowl will I guess maybe, yeah, you know, now that I think about it, maybe the Super Bowl coming out was the best thing to happen to this chick. A whole bunch of people will see it, but a whole bunch of people won't be paying attention to it because they'll be looking at other things. Speaking of other things, this, I think it's this, is it this Saturday? No, February 24th. So they still have time to cancel him. If the name Shane Gillis doesn't sound familiar to you, speaking of just getting attention or good attention, bad attention, Shane Gillis is a comedian. Now, I've seen clips of his stuff. He's he's all right. But he was, a few years ago, hired by Saturday Night Live, back in 2019. He was hired to be a cast member of Saturday Night Live. He's got a right-of-center, pro-Donald Trump bent to him. I don't know if it's shtick or what he really believes. It doesn't really matter. That's what he is known for. And that's why the left went absolutely crazy that this guy was hired to be on Saturday Night Live. Hey, can't have... Saturday Night Live is ours. Yes, Saturday Night Live is yours. That's why it's not funny anymore. You people are miserable. 
You people are awful. And so you're incapable of comedy because comedy points out truths in an uncomfortable way and forces people to confront them. And you aren't interested in truth. Truth isn't your friend. Well, Lord Michaels hired Shane Gillis. And then the same day after the blow up, they went through, like, found a podcast that, from years earlier where he'd said jokes that included the N word and the F word, meaning the homophobic F word. And what other slurs? It's just uh, is being a comedian years before, when, back when that was allowed to be a comedian. Well, now he's coming back. He's gotten so popular, he's coming back to host Saturday Night Live. He'll be hosting Saturday Night Live on February 24th. So good for him, right? Well, and this I just want to give as an example, because a lot of people think, well, Fox, Fox is on our side, or Newsmax is on our side, or whatever is on our side. They're on our side. They're conservative. No, they're businesses first and foremost. They're businesses first and foremost. TMZ, the uh, Hollywood sort of, not necessarily exclusively Hollywood, entertainment world blog is owned by Rupert Murdoch. It's owned by News Corp. Yeah, that's right. They own this crap. They own the New York Post. They own the Wall Street Journal. They own Fox News. They own TMZ. They own a whole bunch of stuff. When Shane Gillis was announced that he was going to be hosting the Saturday Night Live on February 24th, TMZ posted the following, this this story. Comedian Shane Gillis, racial ethnic slurs resurfacing before SNL hosting gig. Resurfacing. Now, these things are on the Internet. They've been on the Internet all along. They're not resurfacing. Rags like TMZ are going out and actively looking for clickbait, finding them, and drawing attention to them again. Because it'd be a great story if the guy who was fired... It's a great story if the guy who was fired from Saturday Night Live before he ever got to appear on Saturday Night Live, probably before he even got to sign a contract with Saturday Night Live, was now back to host Saturday Night Live. That's a good, feel-good story. But it'd be even better if they brought him back. He was so popular, he's going to host Saturday Night Live. And then he got canceled again. He got fired again for the same reason. There's no other reason to bring this crap up. Comedian Shane Gillis is back under the microscope with SNL announcing he's hosting. It reminds some people of the racial epithets he used in his podcasting days. Now, wait a second. It reminds some of those people that are reminded of it. Employees of TMZ, employees, therefore, of News Corp. Shane's known for his edgy stand-up comedy. He's very popular on YouTube and Netflix. And while he hasn't shied away from his past controversial humor, it's jarring to hear him dropping slurs in the middle of anecdotal jokes. Lauren Michaels hired Shane in 2019, but then fired him before he ever appeared on a show due to backlash over anti-Asian jokes he'd made in a different podcast. The offensive content here comes from a podcast called A Fair One, and Shane delivers some controversial jokes, or at least the language was controversial, as he unloads on the N-word, F-word, Jewish slurs. Based on Shane's history at SNL, you gotta believe the producers know some of his material is floating out there on the Internet. No, everything is out on the Internet. 
Things don't resurface. People dig them up. They never really went away. People just draw attention to them because they want a particular reaction to it. Certain people on social media, they'll pop their heads up and say something stupid, and you'll see a whole bunch of people pile up. Remember when you said this? Remember when you said that? They're just living for that moment. Everybody hates cancel culture except for when they're able to use it to their advantage. When he got canned back in 2019, he apologized, saying, quote, I'm a comedian who pushes boundaries. I sometimes miss. If you go through my 10 years of comedy, most of it bad, you're going to find a lot of bad misses, end quote. He also apologized to anybody who was offended by anything he said. It's fair to assume SNL feels he's made amends or evolved as a comedian because they brought him back to host. If you're familiar with Shane's stand-up specials, you know he tells plenty of racial and LGBTQ plus jokes. But the podcast stuff feels even edgier. Definitely not the kind of language you'd expect to hear in his SNL monologue. Sure, it's late-night programming, but NBC's censors are still up and watching. The people doing this hit job, we reached out to Shane's team. So far, no word back. Why the hell would he ever talk to you? Why would he bother talking to you? What the hell's the matter with you? And you realize, oh, wait, they're owned by News, News Corp's company. It's, it's conservative. Rupert Murdoch. Is, no, they will, in a heartbeat, do whatever it is that they think is in their best interest. Like I said, Tucker is interviewing Vladimir Putin. I don't think they've mentioned it once. I don't think they'll ever mention it, actually. They just won't because, well, he's persona non grata there. Is it a news organization? If it's a news organization, it shouldn't matter who makes the news. Should it? Apparently it does. Since we're talking about horrible, horrible racism and everything, I just want to illustrate that things are not just stupid on this side of the pond, as they say. The uh, Telegraph over there in the UK. Headline. British countryside is a racist and colonial white space, wildlife charities claim. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, we're out of problems as a species. Realist, you want to know how good things are? Take a look at what people are complaining about and realize that they're not really complaining about real things. They're making up things. They're searching desperately. Please let me find something to complain about. Because you don't have any real problems. The British countryside is a racist colonial white space, wildlife charities have claimed. Wildlife and Countryside Link, a charity umbrella group whose members include the RSPCA, WWF, which World Wildlife Fund. Shit, all, it, for me, it's always going to be the World Wrestling Federation. I know that they had to change that. And I know what Vince McMahon did is disgusting, but whatever, alleged to have done. Whatever. And National Trust made the claim in evidence provided to Parliament on racism and its influence on the natural world. Why, that bison over there is a bigot. MPs in an all-party parliamentary group were informed that the British countryside has been influenced by racist colonial legacies, which have created an environment some fear is, quote, Dominated by white people, end quote. Oh, no. Dominated by white people. Ugh. Might get another iPhone out of the deal. 
you imagine being, again, out of problems, out of problems. The country's, and it's England, for God's sakes. It's England. If you, if you just saw an aerial shot of their population 100 years ago, you go, is it snowing down there? But nope. Liberalism teaches people to hate everything, including and especially themselves, one way or another. If you're white, you hate yourself because you're white. If you're black, you hate yourself. You need to hate yourself because you're not white. You know, what does that sense of that mean? You know, you're a victim. You're a horrible victim of oppression. You can't get ahead because of your skin color. You're screwed. That's how it works. It's just envy. And he noticed the leadership of the left is of all different configurations of human beings. And you go, wait a minute, how did you, how'd you overcome all these horrible, horrible things that we all who look like us have? I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm making up for it by, uh, by working to end it everywhere. They always have these arguments, just like John Kerry. You shouldn't even fly on a commercial jet. It's too bad for the environment. You just got here on a private plane. Uh, what I'm doing is so important that I must be there. Oh, okay, so it's different for you. It is different. Some of us are more important than others. Uh, the country's green spaces are governed by, quote, white British cultural value. I hate to break it to you guys, but Britain's mostly white. What is it that you think it's missing? What is it? They had the grooming gangs from... Uh, Pakistan there the other couple years ago. Do you think that's what's missing from the British countryside? Is it what 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 do you want to bring to the table here? The report argues and the perception that the countryside is a white space prevents people from other ethnic backgrounds from enjoying the outdoors. Can you imagine that? We declare this place to be too white. And now the place is, feels too white. It'll keep the, the minorities away. Are you trying to keep the minorities away? The Wildlife and Countryside Link reports uh, was submitted to members of parliament uh, and uh, members of parliament for the race and community, which was called for, which has called for evidence on the links between systemic racism and climate change. Have I mentioned that the left is awful everywhere they are and everything they do they're not stupid this, you sit there and you go this is the dumbest thing ever no it's actually very smart because there are some on the left who have been manipulated to believe that racism is everywhere and everything is racist and they need to combat racism and there are other people on the left where they have been convinced that the world is going to come to an end and they need to get rid of the car and we need to block out the sun and we need to do this that and the other thing or all human life is going to die we need to smear paintings with bean soup and demand that we uh you know, live in the dark ages. The Venn diagram overlap of those two groups of people is pretty small. They're both deathly afraid of what it is they're deathly afraid of. This pushes those two circles closer together, making that overlap part bigger. I want to fight racism. I want to fight for the environment or whatever. Oh, oh, wait, your chocolate is in my peanut butter. Your peanut butter is in my chocolate. And suddenly you've merged these groups together. The Liberal Party is not. The Labour Party in the UK is in the minority right now. 
they're trying to cobble together a group of people that will give them the majority so they can implement a lot of their horrible ideas and they're manipulating the public through a lot of their other horrible ideas. Whether or not they actually believe them is, remains to be seen. Let's see. The, uh, the call for evidence comes in the wake of academic hate studies experts launching a 2023 investigation into rural racism in the British countryside. Again, our enemies do not have to, I mean, enemies of civilization, enemies of the, of the West, do not have to try and attack us. They just have to wait. Be a little patient. We'll destroy ourselves. One section of the New Link report seen by the Telegraph argues that there are structural, experiential, it's not experimental, experiential, experience, I suppose, and cultural barriers preventing ethnic minorities accessing the countryside. Structural, experiential, and cultural barriers preventing ethnic minorities from accessing the countryside. You can take a bus, you can take a train pretty much anywhere in England. There's nothing really structural there. Experiential, I've never, I've never been to the uh, countryside. Oh, well, then you never go. Never go. It's terrible. It's, just a, it's a nonstop clan rally out there. It's just that and fishing. Just, you know. And cultural. Well, if. Which culture? Is it the culture of the evil whitey living their own lives, minding their own business in the countryside? Or is it the culture of the progressive leftists in cities like London telling minorities, you're not welcome in there. Don't go. Don't bother. Don't try. Don't do this. Don't do that. Which one is it? I have my suspicions. Uh, but 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 let's see. Yeah, white culture of British values. It states cultural barriers reflect that in the UK, it is white British cultural values that have been embedded into the design and management of green spaces and into society's expectations of how people should engage with them. How do you engage with nature? You look at it, right? By the way, the countryside was probably, to the extent that it was designed at all, if you've ever been to the countryside over in the UK or Scotland or even Ireland, the countryside is probably, quote, designed a thousand or two years ago. Most of it actually was designed when the Romans conquered all the way up to there, built walls, turned, uh, you know, paths into roads that eventually got paved. They, they designed it. They were all white. I hate to break it to you. Not that that matters, but, you know, oh, it's horribly racist. No, white people did it. Sorry, white people did it. Well, we need to vote to get rid of voting. Wait a second. That's cultural appropriation from the Greeks. What do you, you can't do that. Are you Greek? Are you... It adds that, quote, racist colonial legacies continue to frame nature in the UK as white space and claims, quote, the perception that green spaces are dominated by white people can prevent people from ethnic minority backgrounds from using green spaces, end quote. What they don't do is they can't cite one single example of, hey, here's, uh, here's somebody from Pakistan or India about to march out into this grass and have a picnic. And suddenly they're going, hey, what are you doing here? 
Why don't you get out of here? We don't serve your kind around here. You're not supposed to be walking. Around. This is white people grass. What the hell's wrong with these people? It's not just the United States. The report suggests there should be a rights-based approach assessing green spaces, suggesting that the government can create a, quote, legally binding target for access to nature, possibly by ensuring everyone has a green space within a 15-minute walk from their home. Well, there's a lot of densely populated areas of London that have been densely populated for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Are you going to then go and bomb those areas to plant some trees and do some green space? Maybe. Maybe. But there's also a housing crunch inside the city of London, which makes housing ridiculously expensive. If you've ever watched House Hunters International, you know this to be the case. So then what do you do there? There's also a thing called the tube, which will take people in London pretty much anywhere they want to go. So if you really want to go and hug a tree or grind against a tree or whatever a tree, whatever you're, if you're a, a tree sexual, you could find a tree. But they need a rights-based approach, which means then people's rights will be being violated. People's rights will then be being violated, which then leads to lawsuits, which creates a whole new victim class and also an incentive for that victim for you to join that victim class. I didn't realize I was oppressed before, but you mean I can get a hundred thousand pound settlement from the government if I go and talk about how it's a a twenty minute walk from where I am for me to go and defecate in a park? It also makes broader claims about Britain and climate change, stating, quote, the UK's role in the European colonial project has also driven the current climate crisis and nature crises. Now, if that sounds stupid or insane, that's only because it is both. The UK's role, the colonization. I've never known anybody. Do you think past Super Bowl winners, especially winners who beat teams who'd never won the Super Bowl. All the teams, what was it, four years in a row, the Buffalo Bills lost the Super Bowl, something like that? You think the teams that beat those Buffalo Bills are beating themselves up over it, going, oh, man, we denied these people their chance, just whipping themselves. You think the Yankees, with all their World Series victories now, they when they win a Super Bowl, they wake up a year later and they just can't sleep. Like, what is it? We... We won all those Super Bowls, but we denied the Atlanta Braves all but one of them. Like, this is, it's just not right. It's just, no, they don't. No, they don't. Colonialism is the equivalent of trying to get these teams to do that, trying to get a country to do that. Feel bad about colonialism, the horrible legacy of colonialism. Was colonialism great? No. Was it all bad? Absolutely not. Most of the colonial countries, colonized countries, have the modern amenities that they have now because of colonialism, due to colonialism. The roads, they didn't go into France and English, England didn't colonize France. They colonized places that were several hundred, if not several thousand years behind them in development. You know, you come across, you're able to sail the seas. You've mastered 
navigation and gunpowder and everything and metalworking and you come across people essentially living in the Stone Age, who's going to win that? Now you say, well, they're talking racist, horrible things. And you're, the people over there, they were uh, unsuspecting, peaceful people. They were not peaceful. There was no place on the planet that was a straight-up peaceful place. There was tribalism everywhere. Those tribes warred. They didn't just disagree. They didn't say, well, I'll see you in court, kind, sir, about the placement of this easement. No, it is straight-up war. It was straight-up war. Africa invented slavery on the continent of Africa. So it's not like we just, the evil whiteies disrupted utopia everywhere by existing wrong. This is incredibly stupid, incredibly damaging. And that one half of governments of the world are trying to embrace this crap will lead to the destruction of Western civilization, which is what they want. The people who are advocating for this stuff, by the way, will be fine. They will be fine. They ultimately want to move towards a centralized control. They'll go to socialism, then they'll go to fascism, then they'll go ultimately to communism. All further down the political spectrum on the progressive end. But they'll be fine. How do you say that? How can you mean it? Well, I mean, maybe every once in a while they'll be purged. But more normal people will be purged. But if you look at the old Soviet Union, look at the leadership. Leadership, fat people standing in line for food, starving to death. Look at China, Mao, fat. Leadership of the uh, Chinese government, fat. The people starving to death, resorting to cannibalism during the Great Leap Forward because things got so bad. Same with parts of the Soviet Union, particularly Ukraine, the famine up there. Uh, look at North Korea. There are people literally starving to death now in North Korea. Most of the country is malnourished. Kim Jong-un, fat. The leadership is taken care of in these places where everybody is equal and equality is the goal and the objective and blah. Not all equality. Everybody's equal. Some people are just more equal than others. You think, well, they're just talking about a park, Derek. You're reading too much into this. Everything is a brick in the wall, ladies and gentlemen. Everything is a brick in the wall. They don't do anything willy-nilly over there on the left. They know exactly what they're doing. This is just to try and divide a little bit more, get people worked up a little bit more for the ultimate goal. They'll take, you know, two steps, three steps here, four steps there, oh, another step. They don't care. They're in it for the long game. They're playing the long con while we're just sitting here playing checkers. So now that you know that British uh, green spaces are horribly racist and they want to make sure that anybody can, it's a right somehow, that everybody can go to a green space within 15 minutes, 15-minute walk of where they are. First of all, who's walking? What's the pace? I have long legs. I feel bad. My wife, my kids, if I get going, they have difficulty keeping up because I take, I'm mostly leg. I can take long strides and I am a fast walker. I just, you know, want to get there. So I, I, oftentimes I have to stop because they're running off and they're catching up and they're out of breath. And I go, okay, what's it? And Bailey will go, oh, my legs are tired. I'm like, oh, geez, that's right. I got to keep up with this thing. But there's a concept of a 15-minute city. And you go, what the hell is a 15-minute city? Well, there's a piece in the Washington Post back in November how the suburbs could become 15-minute cities. 
See, ultimately, they hate rural areas. They'd much prefer everybody be straight up in urban areas, living in high rises, and be a lot like most of the movies about the future. It's weird. You know, movies, there are very few movies made where the future's pretty damn good. Has there been a movie made where the future's like, you know what? This is just a good movie. It's a comedy, but it just happens to be set 200 years in the future. No, anything pretty much. We're living in the time, by the way. If you watched 80s movies, we're living in the time of the dystopian future of 80s movies. Everything in the the year is 2024. Humanity has lost all humanity. Like, Like, oh, my God, what happened? Like Time Cop was set here, Back to the Future. There's all these horrible dystopian things. Not that Back to the Future was all that horrible and dystopian. But, you know, you get the idea. RoboCop happened. Actually, parts of Detroit are kind of like that. But they always look at the future. And since Hollywood's full of liberals, they always look at the future as this horrible, horrible thing. Maybe they're all thinking we need to take action now to, to change that. Even in movies that you know aren't about the dystopian future, like a great movie, The Fifth Element. Everybody lives in these little shoeboxes piled way high on top of each other. Yeah, they got the flying car, but what's the point of it? Anyway, here's uh, what the Washington Post wrote. Cities are in a hurry. Many are declaring themselves 15-minute metros, promising access to housing, shopping, schools, and jobs within a 15-minute or so walk, bike, or transit ride. God, they want you to ride bikes. And who wouldn't want to live nearly next door to life's pleasures and necessities? See, that's how they try to frame it. Look, it's for your own good. Who wouldn't want to live 15 minutes away from work? Well, depends. If you work downtown Washington, D.C., nobody want to live 15 minutes away from work. Every single day to and from work, you run risk of being robbed, run over, beaten, carjacked. That sound like fun to you? Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo campaigned on the premise. Sydney has proclaimed itself a 20-minute metro. Melbourne is aiming for a more modest 30 minutes. In the United States, cities including Ann Arbor, Michigan. University of Michigan is there. And a whole bunch of dope-smoking hippies, even before it was legal. And Cleveland are embracing the concept, while Portland's complete neighborhoods and Eugene's 20-minute living are putting their own spin on the idea in Oregon. But the 15-minute city, as it is often understood, has inspired fierce pushback. It's a journey from urban planning circles to the public arena. Some have falsely claimed it will imprison people within 15-minute radius of their home. It's about convenience and freedom, advocates argue, not isolation. Oh, yes, the people who want to herd you into the cattle cars want to tell you that it's more about we're taking you to a lovely, lovely place. Now, it's about convenience and freedom. Sure, you could get there on your own, but we're all going there anyway. Save the carbon foot. Think of all the gas you're saving by getting on that cattle car. Some urban planners object to the idea. They say that not everyone's workplace can be within a 15-minute walk, shrinking a metropolitan area's job market. But amid smoldering... See, you... That's true, unless there is a government entity or agency assigning you work, right? But amid smoldering housing and climate crises, the 15-minute city concept offers a way out of both. 
reducing our dependence on cars to go about our daily lives and freeing us to spend our time as we choose. What if you enjoy your commute? What if you enjoy driving? No, well, I mean, we said as spend our time as we choose. It should have really said spend, spend your time as we choose for you. To realize this, we need to look to an unlikely place, the first suburbs. Throughout recorded human history, less than 5% of people lived in cities, but in the relative blink of an eye, this situation reversed. People began living in the countryside in droves during the Industrial Revolution. By 2008, the urban population had eclipsed the rural one. Cities didn't really exist on a mass scale. So it's pretty much easy to explain. The gap continues to widen. 70% of the world's population is expected to live in cities by 2050, which is exactly what the left wants. Herd everybody together. They're easier to control. Urban migration has supercharged human prosperity. See, An estimated 80% of the world's economic activity now occurs in cities. You're not only backwards and selfish and polluting and poisonous and probably racist, you're hurting the planet. This has reduced per capita environmental impact in some high-income nations. City dwellers emit as much as 20% less compared to their rural counterparts. Didn't I tell you this was going to be this way? Largely thanks to more efficient transportation, heating and cooking, according to studies in the United Kingdom, Finland, Austria, and Switzerland. But cities are staggering under their success. Congestion and unaffordability are pushing people. Now, if you're saying their successes, they're only talking about from a liberal environmental perspective. People are suffering. They can't afford anything. Lots of homelessness. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Congestion and affordability are pushing people from many cities into expensive housing in far suburbs or excerpts. Mostly they're driving people out of liberal states to Florida and Texas, but that's beside the point. Vehicles have been the leading source of greenhouse gases in the United States since 2017. Few things exemplify this trajectory better than commuting in the United States. Now, it's, if I'm not reading this in a nefarious way, this and you're just reading it normally, it sounds super wonderful. Oh, it's just awesome. American commuters spend an average of about an hour each day driving to work in 2019. The vast majority alone, up from 44 minutes in 1980. The pandemic will put only a slight dent in these numbers. Few enjoy it. Okay, how do you know? When 900 Texas women were asked to rate their feelings about their daily activities, the morning commute came in dead last. After work and household chores. Longer, so it just means that those 900 women would very much like to be stay-at-home moms, probably, right? Longer commute times have also been associated with more stress, poorer health, and lower job and leisure time satisfaction, the equivalent of a 20% pay cut, according to a 2020 study in the journal Transportation. Uh, the journal Transportation found that you driving yourself wasn't as good as you riding a train. Who would have thunk such a thing? 
God help us all. But yeah, this is a 15-minute city. This is what they would like to do. Herd you in and then make sure that you can't move. Well, you can move around, but you have to pay to move around. It's about the environment. It's about the planet. Your rights are insignificant and secondary relative to the giant ball of dirt that we march on. Conceived in 2016 by Carlos Moreno, the 15-minute city imagines putting humans and their well-being as the main purpose for urban organization. Moreno, an urbanist and professor at the Sorbonne University in Paris, told the Washington Post in March. Now, don't you love that? Do you trust Carlos or really anybody? to have your best interests at heart, to have your interests at heart at all, to know what's best for you and to care about it? No, of course not. They don't care. It's a one-size-fits-all. If you've ever been to a mall in the last 10 years and you've seen people in spandex, you know that one size does not, in fact, fit all. It's about their well-being. Don't worry, we're doing this for your well-being. Get on the cattle car. This is for your own well-being. The idea is, quote, to promote sustainability and health by reducing car dependency and increasing physical activity, primarily through walking, biking, and mass transit. Remember when they built all those bike paths everywhere? You can't go into Washington, D.C. without driving down a street and going, why? There's a whole lane there that's taken up by a bike path, and there's not one single person in a bike. In Baltimore, nobody's riding a bike in Baltimore, but they got bike paths all over the place. They spent a fortune on bike paths that nobody wants to use because guess what? We have winter here. We also have summer and it gets hot as hell. Nobody's going to go, you know what? I got to wear a suit to work, but I'm also going to ride my bike to work. Well, do you have a shower at work? Do you have a dry cleaner at work? Do you have eight pounds of deodorant at work? Because you're going to stink to high heaven by the time you get there. You're going to sweat to death. You're going to suffer from dehydration. Nobody wants to ride their bike to work. There are a couple of granola crunching hippies who ride their bikes to work, and that's about it. But it's for your own good. It's for the health. You take away parking spaces. You make it impossible to get anywhere in any length of time. And then you complain. You go, oh. Commute times are up. Well, why do you think commute times might be up? Could it be that on the major thoroughfares, they took away lanes of traffic to create bike paths that nobody wants to use? Might that be part of the reason why the commute times are up slightly? I think it might be. But don't worry, they know what's best for you. The de this decentralized urban planning model has become a rallying cry for politicians and urban activists around the world fed up with exclusive single-use zoning, car-centric development, and homes segregated from work, retail shopping, and other amenities. That sounds like my life. Does that sound like your life? We're the sick of it. They're sick of this. Now, do all these, all these people probably live in really nice apartments in tall buildings. And they just look at it and they go, why doesn't, if everybody lived like me, life would be better. 
Nazis thought that way, too. Yet the discussion about 15-minute cities obscures a central tension at the heart of the idea. How can all of us live within 15 minutes of amenities and jobs in cities housing millions of people? Quote, it's not ver a very controversial idea in urban planning that it's better when you reach things living or when you can reach things close by in a city, says David Zipper, a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School studying transportation policy. But you can take it too far. Everyone can live and work within 15 minutes of where they want to go. That's just not how things work. This tension has shaped cities for millennia. Yeah, they want to herd you. Ancient villages tended to grow no bigger than about five kilometers in radius, walkable in half an hour, reports Quartz. Today, the average one-way commute in the age of automobiles, remains remarkably consistent in the United States, 27.6 minutes. No matter the speed or form of transportation, humans will travel 30 minutes for daily trips. Then why don't you just leave them alone? See, this is the essence of liberalism. They can't leave us alone. They won't leave us alone. They are incapable of it. They shake themselves awake at night that the thought that somebody might be having fun somewhere that somebody might not be miserable someplace else that somebody might be having a thought all on their own without it first being approved through their political lens you think i'm exaggerating i'm not these people want this is all these ideas all the horrible things that have been done. And most of the horrible things that have been done in the uh, history of humanity have been done under the guise of improving things, of making things better, of doing our best to uh, improve the quality of lives of people. We care so deeply and desperately about people. All of it is done. People thought they were doing good. All of them thought they were doing something to make people's lives better. None of it ever did. The people who pushed it on them didn't matter. These urban planners, they already live there. They don't have to move. They don't have to do anything. I bet many of them actually have, you know, homes out in the, the suburbs, homes, weekend homes, cottages, whatever they want to call them. They're probably very nice and freestanding, but they live and work in the same area. and They keep these other residences and they see no sense of irony in there. They need to get away from the city. You need to get away for 15 minutes. I need to get to a park. What if you need to get away from people? What if you just want to get away from people? You're not allowed to get away from people. What if you just want to be left the hell alone from politicians. That most definitely has no place in this progressive utopia. Eat your Soylent Green. It's delicious. It's all the food we have left. And it's, it will keep you alive. But if somebody else is telling you what to do, where to do it, how you got to do it, and everything else under the sun, are you really living? Okay, I want to play uh, shift gears from the lecture. I want to play you this audio from uh, Ian Corzine. He's a lawyer. He's a former federal. Pro he's a lefty out in California. He's a former federal prosecutor and just general, seemingly insane. Tucker's over. Tucker Carlson's over in. Uh, 
Russia right now allegedly interviewing Vladimir Putin. I was just looking at the Drudge Report, and he said in his MSNBC days, Tucker was a Putin critic. Okay. A Putin cynic, they say. Who cares? How do you know he's not now? I don't I didn't ask. I never bothered to ask him. I texted him the other day because I had a question about something unrelated. And I, it was while he was in Russia. And he responded because he responds all the time, weird times, depending on where he is in the world. And he is, I said, uh, all right, thanks. Enjoy the borst. Try not to get arrested. Says he's working on it. We'll see how it goes. It could be a softball interview. If it is, I'll line up and not criticize him for, for being a soft, giving a, a terrorist, essentially a monster, a softball interview. I doubt it will be, but it could be. But what it won't be is treason. But Ian Corzine, who's a lawyer, which means he went through law school and practiced law as a former federal prosecutor, worked with the governor of California, et cetera, et cetera. Typically, he's a liberal in good standing. To him, Tucker interviewing Putin might be a violation of the Espionage Act. The Espionage Act, if you commit espionage, you can be executed. Um, now, I want you to listen to him try and make this case, and he ultimately sort of sides against himself. But like I say with most of these things, these ideas, somebody puts out a stupid idea, they only take it so far because they're not really trying to advance a stupid idea. They're just trying to advance the cause of the stupid idea. Somebody else will pick it up and say, well, realistically, we could do it. Somebody says, why don't we get rid of Trump? We can use the 14th Amendment, Clause 3, insurrection. Well, that wouldn't really be smart. And then somebody else looks at it and says, well, we could actually make a case for this. We could. And it just goes from there. Somebody has to throw out the idea, and then somebody has to pick up the idea and run with it. If it's just one person going from A to Z, that person can be dismissed as crazy. But if it builds over time, you convince people to your side, meaning leftists. I suspect this guy will end up on MSNBC soon talking about this. And somebody over there, they'll have a lawyer come in and say, you know what, it's not completely out of the realm of possibility. And then there'll be somebody else coming along on Joy Reid's blog talking about how it's not only a possibility, it's a probability and it's a necessity. And then Rachel Maddow will come out of her crypt and say, here's why Tucker Carlson is a traitor. Even though Tucker got her her start. Swear to God, true story. Look it up. Anyway, listen to Ian Corzine try to make the case that maybe there's an idea that uh, Tucker interviewing Vladimir Putin could be a violation of the Espionage Act. Tucker Carlson is interviewing Vladimir Putin today, and many people believe it's going to go horribly wrong for Tucker. My first question was, is it even legal for a U.S. reporter to go over to a country that we're basically at war with and interview the president of that country? The answer is yes, but I forecast some big problems ahead for Tucker Carlson. The Espionage Act is a US law that basically prohibits us from spying or leaking classified documents to foreign countries. But the words of the law are super broad and could be construed to prohibit any sharing of information with another country with intent to harm the US. Is it possible that Tucker shared his questions with Putin's people before the interview? Is it possible that Putin's people provided Tucker with evidence supporting their war with Ukraine? 
insane. This is definitely information covered by the Espionage Act. However, does Tucker Carlson have an intent to harm the U.S.? This is where the Espionage Act case against Tucker gets weaker, and it gets even more weak when you consider that U.S. government is duty-bound to follow the dictates of the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution guarantees freedom of the press, and the U.S. Supreme Court has done everything it can to protect this provision and journalists. That's why only in extreme cases can the U.S. government violate the Constitution. Journalists are free to publish classified information or information that was stolen so long as the media didn't steal the information unless the government can demonstrate an immediate and direct threat to national security. So my view is that Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin is ultimately legal, but Tucker is acting boldly. He's taking a risk that he could be prosecuted later on in time on bogus charges. Yeah, you're insane. It's ultimately it's ultimately legal. Ultimate, he's interviewing somebody. Ultimate. Now watch the next person will pick this up. It'll probably take a week or two, and somebody else will say, "You know what? That's a good point." And here's how it actually does violate this, or here it was problematic. And they just inch things along. It's not about getting Tucker this time. It's about preventing future Tuckers more than anything else. It's about preventing, most of what they do is about preventing other people from following other examples that they don't like, that they find unacceptable. It's, it's terrifying, but that's how they operate. Okay, shifting gears in the limited time we have left here, I got some audio I want to play for you just because well, I cut it up. Why waste it? Um, and it's hilarious. The left, and by the left, I mean mostly never Trumpers now. They're, they're now firmly on the left. They used to be Republicans. Tara Setmeyer, she works with the Lincoln Project. She used to be some sort of Republican communications person, allegedly. I'd never heard of her. But she is now a frequent guest on MSNBC, and she is with, I think she's the Bulwark or one of those left-wing sites that pretends that they're conservative, but all they do is complain about Trump and Republicans. She was on MSNBC talking about how third-party candidates, Robert Kennedy Jr., Cornell West, uh, and anybody else, the Green Party people, Jill Stein, they're threats to democracy. Now, imagine as you listen to this, she's trying to make the case that you having choices is a threat to democracy because you might exercise those choices wrong. You want to talk about the ultimate and totalitarianism. That's what these people are. But with the current level of dissatisfaction with Trump and Biden, is there any chance you see this year could be different? Uh, no, I think that uh, third party candidates are spoilers. I mean, history could potentially repeat itself again. And now more than ever, that the idea of a third party is a threat to our democracy. This is not the time for this. I understand the frustration that the American electorate has. People always express a certain amount of frustration with the two-party system. Um, and But that's the system we have. And we are not in a position now where we have uh, two candidates who equally uh, are, are um, you know, who are equal threats to our democracy. Donald Trump is a threat to our democratic system. He says he wants to be a dictator on day one. The, you know, President Biden doesn't pose that threat. It's a policy difference. Or maybe people think that he's too old. OK, well, you need to take a step back and look at what the choices are here. Third parties do not work. They're spoilers. So if you want Donald Trump to win the election, then go ahead, throw your vote away and vote third party. 
Um, if you don't and you want to maintain our democracy and work within our system to reform it, maybe down the line, there can be an opportunity to have ballot access or a third party or whatever. That's fine. But right now, the threat to our democracy is too great to be messing around with third party um, candidacies. Yeah, the threat to our democracy is too great for you to be able to choose freely, you know, like in a democracy. She doesn't seem to realize this. She's as uh, smart and articulate as she is pretty. That's a joke you'll only get if you have any idea what she looks like. But she wasn't done because she just went on a two and a half minute long word salad because she's, well, dumb. These are just vanity candidacies anyway, because they can't win. No labels has yet to put forward an argument that shows that their their version of events actually constitutes a win. They don't have one. And so every single time we've gone through this exercise, it has really been a vanity candidacy. And if you look at what happened to Hillary Clinton with Jill Stein in 2016, Jill Stein cost her votes in states where if Hillary Clinton lost by um, less votes than Jill Stein offered. So, I mean, it's it's so obvious what's going on here, but they're just exploiting the frustrations of the American people. But there has to be a an argument put forward that people understand what is at stake here. There's a poll out today from the University of Massachusetts Amherst that shows that 39 percent of Americans are OK with a dictator on day one. Thirty nine percent. That should scare the hell out of everyone because that that speaks to the heart, strikes at the heart of our democracy. We need to be worried about that, not third party vanity candidacies now. Yeah, we need to be worried about people who want to dictate things to people. So you can't vote third party. Understand me? And oh, by the way, the dictator on day one was a joke. Of course, Tara doesn't get that. Not again, not that bright. But he said, I want to be a dictator. You're not going to be a dictator. Only on day one. Only on day one, then I won't be. He said he wants to be a dictator. God, you're so stupid. Like, honestly, honestly, you just, you can't, you're the reason Velcro shoes exist. You couldn't tie, you'd probably choke yourself to death if you tried to tie a regular knot in a shoe. Uh, Anyway, as uh, promised, I want to bring you uh, some audio from a report from WGN. Remember them? There used to be the Superstation, WGN, out of Chicago. Outside of Chicago, there is a mayor in a town called Dalton named Tiffany Henyard. She's a real piece of work. There's a couple of investigations into finding out maybe what happened to some money. There might have been some misallocated funds. Well, Tiffany Henyard is a black woman. Dalton is a black, majority black town. The city council is black. And she is pissed that anybody dare challenge a black woman about anything. Really, about anything. Think I'm exaggerating? Listen to this. Y'all should be ashamed of y'all. Y'all black. Y'all are black. And y'all sitting up here beating and attacking on a black woman. That's in power. Y'all should be ashamed of yourselves. Dalton's difficulties got worse in recent weeks with water main breaks, Henyard blames on trustee budget cuts. Then four people were shot and injured last week, leaving nerves frayed and Henyard's opponents pointing out her sizable security detail. It's unfortunate that politics are being played, but what has happened is a million dollars out of my budget has been cut because of politics. Y'all forget I am the leader. They want to hear from the mayor. If y'all ain't learned that yet, the mayor, not the trustees. 
that don't do nothing, that only run their mouth. Y'all don't do no work, no work. Tiffany Henyard considers herself something of a crusader, but one who's clearly annoyed by questions from a rebellious group of Dalton trustees who are in a standoff with her over spending. At the end of the day, vendors are not being paid. Board approved it. The vendors are not being paid. How about you be a good leader, bring RFPs to the forefront, so not just us, but the residents and everybody else in America know how the money is being spent. WGN Investigates has cataloged tens of thousands of taxpayer dollars spent on trips, meals, and more by Tiffany Henyard and her allies in Dalton and on the Thornton Township Board, where she's the supervisor. Township credit card records show Henyard and other officials spent more than $67,000 on trips to Portland, Austin, Atlanta, and New York City. Many of the flights were first class. So were the accommodations. In Atlanta, Henyard and her team stayed at the Four Seasons Hotel, costing taxpayers more than $9,000. In New York, the bill came to $13,000. Henyard has refused to explain the specific purpose of the trips or why they travel in such style. Don't you love it? She refused. She won't talk about what what the purpose of the, why'd you go to New York? Why'd you go to Atlanta? You're you're mayor of a small town near Chicago. What do you uh none of your business. How do you spend thirteen thousand dollars in New York? None of your business. Gotta fly first class? Y'all shouldn't be asking this. Man it could be the worst mayor in all of the world. Definitely the country. I suspect things are going to continue to go sideways now that this report has sort of gone viral and more people hear about it and it spreads even further. You can get away with this stuff for a very long time, but you really do have to, but only it eventually runs out. You do have to wonder what was on the ballot opposite Tiffany Henyard. Was it like a, a bag full of dead rats or bag full of mostly dead rats and like, uh, you know, Tiffany Henyard won by 30 votes. I don't know. I don't, it's the only thing I can imagine that where it's like, I'd be torn. Well, I don't like Tiffany Henyard, but I think a bag of dead rats would be probably worse. Probably? Maybe. Probably regretting that vote. Okay, that's about enough for today, I think, and this week. Get on to the weekend. Get to the Super Bowl. I don't really have a team I'm rooting for. I guess... Uh, I'd probably curse them. But I'd go with the 49ers. They beat the Lions, and it's been longer since they've won. So that probably means the smart money's on the Chiefs if you're betting. But don't bet. Enjoy the commercials. Check out the Week in F and Review. I'll get further into the Biden senility crap and talk about it the way that it actually absolutely deserves to be discussed. And uh, see you in the morning with Bo on WABC, 7 a.m.-ish. Hopefully I'll be up this time. Although I've got, uh, as the girls say, some boogers. So hopefully my voice will hold out. Thank you for listening. Patreon.com slash Derek Hunter Podcast, all that good stuff. I'll see you guys soon.